Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and I'd like to start out today's episode with an apology for not releasing an episode on the 11th, as is custom as is customary. Uh, it just so happened that that was our first week back at school after the break, and because I'm crazy, I thought we could handle opening a play that week as well, which we did. The kids did a great job. We produced a play called The Hunchback of Seville by Sharice Castro-Smith, and I would love to do an episode about her and her plays, and especially that play, at some point in the near future, because she's a very gifted writer. Um, and, And the play was just It's a beautiful script, and I'm so proud of my students for pulling it off. But my apologies, again, uh, I did not have the time or ability to release an episode because I was at school every day for who knows how long. I've lost count. Uh, So I am hoping to make it up to you today with a very juicy story about the making of the Oxford English Dictionary. We're going to start out with an article from the mentalfloss.com website, The Murderer Who Helped Make the Oxford English Dictionary, by Lucas Riley. William Chester Minor opened his eyes and gazed sleepily at the figure of a man looming over the foot of his bed. The intruder, who had been hiding in Miner's attic during daylight, had slithered from the rafters, crept into the bedroom, and now, under the dark of night, was watching Miner as he dreamed. In his hands, the faceless man held metal biscuits slathered in poison. The next morning, Miner woke up unscathed of the intruder's shenanigans. He checked his closet and crawled on his knees to look under his bed. Nobody was there. But that night, the trespasser returned. And the next night. And the next. Each night, Miner laid in his bed frozen with fright. By 1871, Miner needed a vacation. He left his lodgings in Connecticut and sailed for London in search of peace of mind and a good night's sleep. His harassers followed. In fact, moving to England only placed Miner closer to his tormentors. Most, if not all, of the trespassers had been Irishmen, members of an Irish nationalist group called the Finian Brotherhood that was not only hell-bent on ending British rule, but was equally hell-bent on exacting revenge on Minor. Minor envisioned these Irish rebels huddling under the cover of gaslit streets, whispering plans of torture and poisoning. On multiple occasions, Minor visited Scotland Yard to report the break-ins to the police. The detectives would politely nod and scribble something down, but when nothing changed, Miner decided to handle the problem himself. He tucked a loaded pistol, a Colt 38, under his pillow. On February 17, 1872, Miner woke to see the shadow of a young man standing in his bedroom. This time he did not lay still. He reached for his gun and watched the man bolt for the door. Miner threw off his blankets and sprinted outside with his weapon. It was about two in the morning. It was cold. The streets were slick with dew. Miner looked down the road and saw a man walking. 
Three or four gunshots broke the night's silence. Blood pooled across the Lambeth cobblestones. The man whose neck gushed with blood was not Miner's intruder. His name was George Merritt. He was a father and a husband, and he had been walking to work at the Red Lion Brewery, where he stoked coal every night. Moments after police arrived at the scene, Merritt was a corpse and William Miner a murderer. Miner explained to the cops that he had done nothing illegal. Somebody had broken into his room and he merely defended himself from an attack. Was that so wrong? He did not know that, despite his sincerely held beliefs, there had never been any intruders. Nobody had ever broken into his rooms or hidden in his ceilings or under his bed. The Irishman, the plots, the poison, all of it had been imagined. None of it was real. George Merritt, however, was very much real, and now very much dead. Seven weeks later, a court found William C. Minor, 37, not guilty on the grounds of insanity. Once a respected army surgeon who saved lives, he had suddenly been rejected as a deluded lunatic who took lives. He was sentenced to the Asylum for the Criminally Insane, Broadmoor. One of England's newest asylums, Broadmoor had already held a crew of tragically deluded criminal figures. There was Edward Oxford, who had attempted to shoot a pregnant Queen Victoria, Richard Dadd, a talented painter who had committed parricide, wanted to murder Pope Gregory XVI, and only consumed eggs and beer, and Christiana Edmonds, aka the Chocolate Cream Killer a 19th century sweet tooth spin-off of the Unabomber who, instead of packing up explosives, mailed her victims poisoned fruits and baked goods. For many patients, getting institutionalized at an asylum such as Broadmoor marked the end of their useful lives, but not minor. From the solitude of his cell in Broadmoor's cell block two, he'd become the most productive and successful outside contributor to the most comprehensive reference book in the English language, the Oxford English Dictionary. There was a time when William C. Minor did not see phantoms lurking in his bedroom, a time when he did not soothe his paranoia with the reassurance of a loaded pistol. He had been a promising Yale-trained surgeon who loved to read, paint watercolors, and play the flute. That began to change, however, in 1864, when he visited the front lines of the American Civil War. The Battle of the Wilderness may not have been the most famous or decisive battle of the war, but it was one of the most haunting to witness. Soldiers did more than bleed there. They burned. The battle, as the name suggests, was not fought on scenic horizon-hugging farmland, but in the dense, tangled undergrowth of a, Vir of a Virginia forest. On May 4, 1864, Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant's Union Army crossed the Rapidan River near Fredericksburg and encountered Confederate troops commanded by General Robert E. Lee. The belligerents exchanged fire. Smoke rose over the tree branches as dead leaves and thick underbrush smoldered and blazed. Soldiers who survived the battle would describe the forest fire in vivid detail. The blaze ran sparkling and crackling up the trunks of the pines till they stood a pillar of fire from base to topmost spray, 
wrote one soldier from Maine. Then they wavered and fell, throwing up showers of gleaming sparks, while over all hung the thick clouds of dark smoke, reddened by the glare of flames. Ammunition trains exploded. The dead were roasted in the conflagration, wrote then-Lieutenant Colonel Horace Porter. The wounded, roused by its hot breath, dragged themselves along with their torn and mangled limbs in the mad energy of despair to escape the ravages of the flames, and every bush seemed hung with shreds of blood-stained clothing. More than 3,500 people died. Miner had experience treating soldiers, but the Battle of the Wilderness was the first time he had seen patients fresh from combat. There were 28,000 total casualties. Many of them were Irish immigrants. The famous Irish Brigade, widely considered among the Army's most fearless soldiers, was a primary combatant, and it's likely that Dr. Miner treated some of its members. But, as his family later insisted, it was Miner's experience with one Irish deserter that would break his brain. During the Civil War, the punishment for desertion was technically death. But the army usually treated deserters with a lighter punishment that was both temporarily painful and permanently shameful. During the Battle of the Wilderness, that punishment was branding. The letter D was to be burned into every coward's cheek. For some reason, perhaps a weird twist of wartime logic that suggested such a punishment was akin to a medical procedure, it fell to the doctor to carry out the branding. So, Miner was forced to thrust an orange glowing branding iron into the cheek of an Irish soldier. According to court testimony, the horrific event shook Miner deeply. If branding a man did make Miner snap, his mental illness fomented under the guise of normalcy. For two years, the doctor continued helping patients with great success, enough, in fact, to be promoted to captain. Then, around 1866, he began showing the first signs of paranoia while working on Governor's Island in New York Harbor. After a group of crooks mugged and killed one of his fellow officers in Manhattan, Dr. Miner began carrying his military-provided handgun into the city. He also began acting on an uncontrollable, uncontrollable urge for sex, slinking into brothels every night. Miner had long been plagued by lascivious thoughts. The son of conservative missionaries and members of the Congregationalist Church, he had long felt guilty and anxious about what was, most likely, a sex addiction. The more people he slept with in New York, and the more venereal infections he developed, the more he began to look over his shoulder. The army noticed. Around 1867, Dr. Minor was deliberately sent from the bordellos of New York to a remote fort in Florida. But it did not help his paranoia. It grew worse. He grew suspicious of other soldiers, and at one point, he challenged his best friend to a duel. Sunstroke made his mental state deteriorate further. In September 1868, a doctor diagnosed him with monomania. One year later, another physician wrote, The disturbance of the cerebral functions is ever more marked. In 1870, 
The army discharged him and handed him a handsome pension. With that money, Minor would buy a ticket to London, pay for rent and prostitutes, and ultimately buy rare and antiquarian books that would be shipped to his cell at Broadmoor, where he would eventually take a special interest in the development of what would become the world's leading dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary is not your everyday dictionary. Unlike the official dictionary of the French language, the Dictionnaire de l'Académie Française, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, I don't speak French, it's not prone to finger-wagging, stuffily dictating what is and is not acceptable language. The OED simply describes words as they exist, from street slang to lab coat jargon. If a word has made a dent somewhere in an English-speaking culture, it is included. Unlike your stereotypical glossary, which presents the current usage and meaning of a word, the OED tracks the word's evolution, when it entered the language, how its spellings and pronunciations changed over time, when new shades of meaning emerged. Take a word as mundane as apple. The OED lists 12 main definitions, and a total of 22 different senses, that is, shades of meaning. It traces the meaning we all recognize, apple as in fruit, to an early Old English book called Bald's Leipzig, where it's spelled apla. But the OED also tracks definitions for apple that other dictionaries might neglect. The tree itself, first appearing in 1500, or the wood of that tree, in 1815, or a gall on the stem of an unrelated plant in 1668, a lump in somebody's throat in 1895, or a baseball in 1902, or a shade of green in 1923, or all right in New Zealand in 1943, or the pupil of your eye in the 9th century, or as a synonym for guy in 1928, or a derogatory term for a Native American who has adopted white culture in 1970. The dictionary even shows defunct meanings from 1577 to the early 1800s. The word apple could be applied to any fleshy vessel full of seeds. It's also been used as a verb. Each definition is supported with quotations, sentences from books and newspapers and magazines that show the word being used in that manner. Each definition has lists of quotations listed in chronological order so that readers can see how that particular meaning of the word evolved. Simon Winchester, in his brilliant best-selling book about William Miner's contributions to the OED, The Professor and the Madman, explains the innovation beautifully. The OED's guiding principle, the one that has set it apart from most other dictionaries, is its rigorous dependence on gathering quotations from published or otherwise recorded uses of English and using them to illustrate the use of the sense of every single word in the language. The reason behind this unusual and tremendously labor-intensive style of editing and compiling was both bold and simple. By gathering and publishing selected quotations, the dictionary could demonstrate the full range of characteristics of each and every word with a very great degree of precision. Scouring obscure books for quotations of every word in the English, la in the English language is no easy feat. It requires the help of hundreds of volunteers. 
1858, when the project was launched, the dictionary's editors published a general request asking for volunteers to read books and mail in sentences that illuminated the meaning of a word, any word. Sub-editors would sift through these slips and do the tedious job of reviewing these quotations and, if accepted, organizing them under the appropriate definition. The first attempt was a mess. Readers mailed more than two tons of suggestions, but the slips were poorly organized. As one tale goes, all the words under the entire letter F or H were accidentally lost in Florence, Italy. After 20 years, volunteer enthusiasm had dwindled and the project had lost momentum under the weight of its own ambitions. It wasn't until Dr. James Murray, a philologist, took over that the modern OED began taking shape. Murray was, in all respects, a linguistic genius. He knew in varying degrees Italian, French, Catalan, Spanish, Latin, Dutch, German, Flemish, and Danish. He had a grasp of Portuguese, Vaudois, Provençal, Celtic, Slavonic, Russian, Persian, Archimanid, Cuneiform, Sanskrit, Hebrew, and Syriac. He also knew his way around Aramaic, Arabic, Coptic, and Phoenician. Among these talents, Murray was also expert on the sheep counting methods of Yorkshire farmers and the Wawanak Indians of Maine. In 1879, Murray published a new appeal to magazines and newspapers asking the English-speaking and English-reading public for volunteers. He laid out exactly what they needed. In the early English period up to the invention of printing, so much has been done and is doing that little outside help is needed. But few of the earliest printed books, those of Caxton and his successors, have yet been read, and anyone who has the opportunity and time to read one or more of these, either in originals or accurate reprints, will confer valuable assistance by so doing. The later 16th century literature is very fairly done, yet here several books remain to be read. The 17th century, with so many more writers, naturally shows still more unexplored territory. The 19th century books, being within the reach of everyone, have been read widely, but a large number remain unrepresented, not only of those published during the last 10 years, while the dictionary has been in abeyance, but also of earlier date. But it is in the 18th century, above all, that help is urgently needed. In late 1879, William C. Minor, who had now been institutionalized at Broadmoor for over seven years, likely picked up his subscription of the Athenium Journal and read one of Murray's requests. Minor looked around his cell. Towering to the ceiling were piles upon piles of books. Obscure travel treatises published during the early 1600s, such as A Relation of a Journey Begun 1610, and Geographical History of Africa. He cracked open a book and began his life's work. With sunlight came stability. Minor, with his long, tussled white beard, spent daylight hours reading and painting watercolors. He resembled a haggard Claude Monet impersonator. He spoke coherently and intelligently, and by all outward appearances, seemed to be in control of his thoughts and actions. He gave, he gave inmates flute lessons. 
He even grew remorseful for the murder he committed and apologized to George Merritt's widow. He was at times obstinate. He once refused to step indoors during a snowstorm, barking at his attendants, I am allowed to go out and can choose my own weather, but was otherwise the ideal inmate. But at night, he was a disaster. He felt the gaze of young boys watching him, heard their footsteps as they prepared to smother his face with chloroform. He watched helplessly as interlopers barged into his room, shoved funnels into his mouth, and poured chemicals down his throat. He complained that invaders entered with knives and unspecified instruments of torture and operated on his heart. Others forced him into sordid acts of depravity. At one point, his harassers kidnapped him and carted him all the way to Constantinople, where they publicly tried to, in Miner's words, make a pimp of me. Miner tried to stop them. He barricaded his door with chairs and desks. He fashioned traps, tying a string to the doorknob and connecting it to a piece of furniture, the logic being that if somebody cracked open the door, the furniture would screech across the floor and act like a booby-trapped burglar alarm. He, subscri he subscribed to engineering journals, possibly in hopes for better construction advice. But none of this helped his condition. One of Broadmoor's doctors described him as abundantly insane. The one and only object that likely occupied more space in Miner's mind than his nighttime harassers was the Oxford English Dictionary. Not only did the job of curating quotations provide him a semblance of peace, it also offered him a chance at a different kind of redemption. This was not, it turns out, the first time Miner had contributed to a major reference book. Back in 1861, when he was a first-year medical student at Yale, Miner had helped contribute to the Webster's Dictionary of the English Language. Guided by Yale scholars, the book was the first major English dictionary edited by a team of trained lexicographers, and the 114,000-word edition published in 1864 would become the world's largest mass-produced book at the time. Miner had assisted a professor of natural history, but when that professor became ill, the Green medical student effectively took over. He was in way over his head. He made sloppy mistakes, prompting one critic to call Miner's contributions the weakest part of the book. The Oxford English Dictionary was a chance to make amends, and Miner took to the task with the zeal of a man who had nothing but time. The editors of the dictionary had advised volunteers like Miner to focus on rare or colorful terms, eye-grabbing words like baboon or blubber or hubbub, and to ignore grammatical filler like and, of, or the. But many volunteers, eager to impress the philologists at Oxford, took the directions too far. They supplied more quotations for abstruse words such as, well, abstruse, and few quotations for simple words such as, say, simple. The omissions frustrated Murray, who complained, my editors have to search for precious hours for quotations for examples of ordinary words, which readers disregarded, thinking them not worthy of including. It didn't help that the editors could never predict what would come through the door. Each day they had to sift through and organize hundreds, sometimes thousands, of unexpected quotations. 
But Miner did not mail in quotations at random. What made him so good, so prolific, was his method. Instead of copying quotations willy-nilly, he'd flip through his library and make a word list for each individual book, indexing the location of nearly every word he saw. These catalogs effectively transformed Miner into a living, breathing search engine. He simply had to reach out to the Oxford editors and ask, so what words do you need help with? If the editors, for example, needed help finding quotations for the term sesquipedalia, a long word that means very long words, Miner could review his indexes and discover that sesquipedalia was located on page 339 of Elocution, on page 98 of Familiar Dialogues and Popular Discussions, on page 144 of Burlesque Plays and Poems, and so on. He could flip to these pages and then jot down the appropriate quotations. Oxford's first request, however, was less exotic. It was art. The editors had discovered 16 meanings, but were convinced more existed. When Miner searched his indexes, he found 27. The Oxford staff was overjoyed. As Winchester writes, they knew now that down at this mysteriously anonymous address in Crowthorne, in all probability they had on tap, as it were, a supply of fully indexed words together with their association, citations, and quotations. They made Miner the team's go-to resource for troublesome words. For the rest of the 1890s, Miner would send as many as 20 quotations a day to the sub-editors in Oxford. His submissions had a ridiculously high acceptance rate, so high in fact that in the OED's first volume, then called A New English Dictionary, published in 1888, James Murray added a line of thanks to Dr. W.C. Miner Crowthorne. Murray, however, had no idea about his contributor's identity. I never gave a thought to who Miner might be, he said. I thought he was either a practicing medical man of literary tastes with a good deal of leisure, or perhaps a retired medical man or surgeon who had no other work. In 1891, the two exchanged personal letters and agreed to meet at Broadmoor. When Murray arrived, any surprise upon seeing his top contributor confined inside an insane asylum appears to have quickly worn off. The two sat and talked in Miner's cell for hours. Murray would write, I found him, as far as I could see, as sane as myself. It was a cool December morning when William C. Miner cut off his penis. Unlike other patients at Broadmoor, Miner had been permitted to carry a penknife in his pocket, which he had once used to cut the bound pages of his old first edition books. But it had been years since he had last put it to use, and on a breezy day in 1902, Miner sharpened the blade, tightened a tourniquet around the base of his penis, and performed what the medical community might delicately describe as an autopayotomy. It took one swift motion of the wrist. With his member dismembered, Miner calmly ambled downstairs to the gate of Block 2 and hollered for an attendant. "'You had better send for the medical officer at once,' he yelled. "'I have injured myself.'" The attendants were afraid something terrible like this could happen. Over the previous years, Miner had grown increasingly religious, 
a heart, his reawakened spirituality manifested itself in the most unfruitful ways. His insatiable sexual appetite, his shamefully libidinous past, and the sexually abusive specters that bedeviled him at nightfall had filled him with relentless guilt. He believed there had been a complete saturation of his entire being with the lasciviousness of over twenty years, during which time he had relations with thousands of nude women, night after night, reads Miner's medical file. But when he became Christianized, he saw that he must sever himself from the lascivious life that he had been leading. Sever, indeed. Miner's self-surgery did not make the nightly phantasms any less common, nor did it make his sexual urges any less intense. Before the incident, he had claimed that his visitors were forcing him to have sex with hundreds of women from Reading to Land's End, and afterwards he continued complaining of unwanted harassers. It was around this time, as Miner recuperated in the infirmary, that he stopped contributing to the Oxford English Dictionary. Over the following years, Miner and Murray continued corresponding and remained warm acquaintances. In 1905, while Murray was on a trip to the Cape of Good Hope, Miner sent his devoted editor money to cover expenses. Five years later, Murray returned the favor by joining an effort to return the deteriorating man back to the United States. It worked. In 1910, after more than three decades at Broadmoor, Miner was transported back to an asylum in America. When he died ten years later in 1920, no obituary would mention his achievements. But you didn't have to look very far to find them. All you had to do was crack open the pages of an Oxford dictionary. In the preface of the fifth volume of the OED, James Murray published his word of thanks. Second only to the contributions of Dr. Fitzgerald Hall, one of the OED's earliest major contributors, in, enhan in enhancing our illustration of the literary history of individual words, phrases, and constructions, have been those of Dr. W.C. Minor, received week by week for words at which we are actually working. Elsewhere, Murray wrote, the supreme position is certainly held by Dr. W.C. Minor of Broadmoor, who during the past two years has sent in no less than 12,000 quotes. So enormous have been Dr. Minor's contributions during the past 17 or 18 years that we could easily illustrate the last four centuries from his quotations alone. Indeed, it is hard to fathom the magnitude of Minor's contributions. He provided material for entries as obscure as doby and as common as dirt. Today, the OED calls itself the definitive record of the English language, and it defines more than 300,000 words, more than half a million if you count word combinations and derivatives. It remains the authoritative reference for courtrooms, policymakers, and etymology nerds alike. Linguists respect it as the barometer of where the language has been and where it may be going. Much of that credit goes to Minor. Today, the stacks of books that he so preciously consulted are tucked away in Oxford's Bodleian Library. At least 42 of his famed word indexes are protected inside the vaunted archives of the Oxford English Dictionary. The words contained within are much like the man himself. Minor was a surgeon, a veteran, and a murderer. He was a Yaley, a painter, and a danger to others. 
He was a sex addict, a reformed, a, a reformed deist, and most likely a paranoid schizophrenic. The defining features of Minor's character, what his life meant, shifted with time and could never be reduced to one single identification. But it'd be nice to think that one definition would be crowned at the top of the page. Greatest outside contributor to the Oxford English Dictionary. If you enjoyed that article, I highly recommend The Professor and the Madman Mentioned Within, written by Simon Winchester. I'm a ways into it and I'm really enjoying it so far, which is why we're doing an episode on it today. It reminds me a bit of The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, jumping back and forth between two men's stories. I will, of course, be posting an Amazon link in the show notes for you. This also aroused my curiosity about other contributors to the OED, and after a quick search, I found this blog post from March of 2016 about significant female contributions over the past 150 years. Women and the Oxford English Dictionary On International Women's Day, we shine the spotlight on 10 women without whom the OED would not be what it is today. Some are famous, some less so, but all made a vital and important contribution. Also, apologies in advance for any mispronunciations. Number one, Charlotte Young, from 1823 to 1901, novelist perhaps best known today for The Heir of Redcliffe, 1853. She also wrote an important book on the history of Christian names and founded the magazine The Monthly Packet and edited it for many years. She was involved with the dictionary almost from its inception and was one of the first volunteer sub-editors, preparing draft entries in the letter N in the 1860s. She is also currently one of the 10 most frequently quoted female authors in the OED, with nearly 300 quotations from her novel Cameos alone. Numbers 2 and 3, Miss Scott and Miss Skipper. Two young women of fair education from the village of Mill Hill, where James Murray was living when he first took on the editorship of the dictionary. He took them on in 1879 to help with the enormous task of sorting the millions of quotation slips that had been collected. They worked at it for three years, and Ellen Skipper carried on for another three years after Miss Scott left. Number 4. Edith Thompson, 1848-1929 Historian and prolific author, though often writing under pseudonyms, sorry, her History of England, a school textbook, went through many editions. She began to contribute. Contri- she began to contribute quotations to the dictionary in 1880, together with her sister Elizabeth, who was also an author. They contributed. 15,000 quotations during the next eight years and continued for the rest of their lives. Edith also became one of the much-valued group of people who read and supplied detailed comments on the proofs of the dictionary and acted as an expert consultant on various historical terms. Number 5. Jeanette Humphreys, 1829-1917 Children's author, Her collection of nursery rhymes, Laugh and Learn, continued to be reprinted after her death. She began to write James Murray at much the same time as Edith Thompson and soon became a regular correspondent. 
She too was a voluminous contributor of quotations, credited with nearly 20,000 by 1888, and for a while was the second most prolific contributor of all. Number six, Hilda Murray, 1875 to 1951, eldest daughter of James Murray. Like all of Murray's 11 children, Hilda Murray helped out with the dictionary from her earliest years. Initially, this involved sorting the quotation slips into alphabetical order, but later, Hilda also researched the etymologies of many words for her father and carried out statistical work for the dictionary. After graduating from Oxford University in Modern Languages in 1896, she went on to become a successful academic, eventually becoming vice-mistress of Girton College in Cambridge. Number 7. Mary Dormer Harris, 1867 1936. Although she worked on the dictionary only briefly, as a member of James Murray's staff in 1895, Mary Dormer Harris has the distinction of being the first woman to do so apart from Murray's wife and daughters. She came to the dictionary after studying, studying English at Oxford and went on to become a distinguished local historian specializing in the history of Coventry and Warwickshire in general. Number 8. Ethelwyn Rebecca Steen, 1873-1941 Daughter of an Oxford wine merchant, Ethelwyn Steen was taken on as an assistant by William Craigie, the OED's third editor, in 1901 and remained on the staff for the next 30 years. She also found love through the dictionary. Another assistant, Lawrence Powell, who was taken on at the same time as Ethelwyn, became her husband in 1909. A copy of the still incomplete dictionary was presented to them by Oxford Uni University Press on the occasion of their marriage. Number 9. Jesse Sr., later Coulson, 1903-1987 Jesse Sr. was taken on as an assistant in 1928 to work on the compilation of the first supplement to the OED. By the time the supplement appeared in 1933, she had married the chemist E.A. Coulson. She had also begun what, begun what was to be a successful career as a lexicographer in her own right. After the death of the original compiler of the Little Oxford Dictionary, George Osler, she saw it through the press. She went on to work on many other Oxford dictionaries, including editions of the Shorter Oxford English Dictionary, the Oxford Illustrated Dictionary, and the Pocket Oxford Russian Dictionary. Number 10. Marganita Lasky, 1915-1988 Writer, critic, and broadcaster. A prominent figure in literary London for several decades, she somehow managed to combine her literary and broadcasting work with a passionate enthusiasm for the OED, and in particular for contributing quotations to the revised supplement in the dictionary being edited by Robert Birchfield. Over the last three decades of her life, she contributed something like a quarter of a million quotations, taken from her voluminous and wide-ranging reading, which included enormous quantities of crime fiction, but also books on gardening and embroidery, and even mail-order catalogs. Like Edith Thompson, she also read proofs of many dictionary entries. And... This is to say nothing of the dozens of women engaged in revising and, up and updating the OED today. I would like to meet some of those women, actually. 
Uh, the opinions and other information contained in the Oxford Words blog posts and comments do not necessarily reflect the opinions or positions of Oxford University Press. I just had to add that. Uh, if you have not had a chance to explore the Oxford English Dictionary website, it is fascinating. I know that I've ragged on them for their dictionary app. I I prefer the dictionary.com app, especially for the word of the day function. Uh, I think it's, I think whoever has that job of choosing the word of the day for the dictionary.com app is really uh having a joke with the rest of the world. Um, it's, it's very interesting. The words that are chosen at times, um, the other day, our first day back at school after vacation, the word, and I can't recall it off the top of my head, but the meaning was a very intense sigh, um, as of exhaustion. And I just thought that's so funny. I wonder if they thought about how many people, are going back to school today after a long break, um, but they've they've had some pretty um, interesting words, especially over the last few months, um, and thinking about what's going on in the world and politically. I just I would like to shake hands with whoever does the Dictionary.com app word of the day, but uh, the OED website, um, regardless of how sad their word of the day choices are. I, I think they're totally random. Um, but the OED website is really fascinating. A couple of years ago, I was doing a, a professional workshop for teachers um, to learn how to teach, teach Shakespeare. And we had access to uh, the the OED online, and it was so fascinating. You could look up any word and see uh, its earliest incarnation through to the current day. It really is such an incredible dictionary um, and so comprehensive. Uh, if you are a word nerd like me, it, it's quite fascinating. Well, that is it for today, and I want to thank you for listening, listening and sticking with me. Um, if you have questions or ideas, or comments that you would like to share, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. That email address will also be listed in the show notes. And as always, if you love it, tell your friends. If you hate it, tell your enemies that they'll love it. Um, please consider uh, doing us a favor by rating, reviewing, and subscribing in iTunes. That will help reach a wider audience. Have a wonderful day.